Jewish audio on Kabbalah.org. Rambam, Mishnah Torah, Hilchai, the laws of Ritzeach, a murderer, Ushmirat Nefesh, and guarding one's soul, which means watching one's health. Pedic Shmini, chapter 8. Aleph 1. Mitzvah say now that we've learned the laws of the manslayer and the laws of the manslayer running to the city of refuge, we need some details. It is one of the positive commandments, Lahaprish, to set aside, to designate Orimikot, cities of refuge. And the verse says, Sholish Orim Tavdulach, three cities you should set aside. The ain't Orimikot Meheges, the custom, the practice of the cities of refuge, is only observed in Israel. So in New Jersey, there are no cities of refuge. Bays, how many cities of refuge were there? The Sheish Orim Hoyu, there were six cities. Sholish Hibdul Meshur Abeyu Be'evan three in Transjordan. Does anybody know how to zoom here? Visholish Hivdil Yeshua Beyaritz Canaan. And later, Joshua, Yeshua designated three in the land of Israel. And I actually have a map from Wikipedia here. And we're going to ask our producer here if he knows how to zoom. Oh, look at this guy. He's going to have a new producer today. Not too much. Go back a little bit. This is a map. I guess it's really hard to tell. I'm not sure if you can see it or not. So on this map, which is you go into the Hebrew Wikipedia under Cities of Refuge, it shows two sides of the Jordan. It shows on the right side of the Jordan, which is Transjordan, the three cities were Golan, Ramot, and Betzer. On the left side, Israel proper, Kodesh on the north, Shechem, which today is called Nablus. That's after the peace process. It's called Shechem, Nablus, and Hebron. Hebron. Some people say, what is Chevron doing in Israel? Looks like Chevron. So these three cities in Israel proper are equal to Pasqual distance. They're exactly the distance, a third, a third, and a third. We have top, middle, and bottom. The same goes in Transjordan. So if you go to Hebron today, or you look at Shechem or Kodesh, and you say, wow, this was one of the biblical cities of refuge. Wow. Okay. Gimel, Ein Achas Me'orim Miklot Keletes. They actually do not kick in as cities of refuge, even one of them, Acheyabdulu, or Yubdulukulon, until they're all designated. And as it says, Sheish Orim Miklot Tiyanolacham. Six cities of refuge you shall have. And this presented a problem. Does Moshe Rabbeinu designate the three in Transjordan, or does he not? He can designate them from today to tomorrow, but they don't function until all six are. And that only happened later in the next generation, with Joshua, with Joshua. The Hegiyonu Moshe Rabbeinu, so Moshe Rabbeinu informed us, Sheish Shalish Shabbat Yarim Keletes, that the three in Transjordan do not actually provide refuge. Acheyabdulu Shalish Shabbat Yarim until the three in Israel proper are set aside. So in that case, if it doesn't work, then Viloma Hibdilon, why did he designate them? Omar Moshe Rabbeinu said, and this is something that we all need to learn from Moshe Rabbeinu, Hail Ovoa Mitzvah Liyodi Akaimena. If I have the opportunity to perform a mitzvah, I'm going to do it. It's going to function. It's not going to function. At least I will do mine. And we should never procrastinate. We should never be a manana person when it comes to mitzvahs. Now, this is one of the famous teachings in the Rambam where he talks about Mashiach, Bimei HaMelech Mashiach during the days in the era of Mashiach, of King Mashiach, which means when Mashiach will come and Israel will become even larger, Hashem promised Abraham, Abinu, Abraham, 10 countries. Seven of them are known as the seven Canaanite countries. There are three more, Cani, Knizi, and Kadmoni. The, the other three were never delivered. The question is, Hashem promises they have to be delivered. The answer is when Mashiach comes, they will become an integral part of Israel proper. Cani, Knizi, and Kadmoni surrounding Israel. So there are Sholish Acheres. There'll have to be three other cities of refuge, Aleilu Sheish, for the three Cani, Knizi, Kadmoni cities. For the three countries, you're going to need three more cities of refuge because it's a bigger territory. As the verse says, you will add three on top of the three. The Hechem Mesif and Esau where? But in the lands, as I just said, of Cani, Knizi, Kadmoni, in these lands that, whose names we just mentioned, which are biblical names. These countries were promised in covenant to Abraham Abinu, to Abraham, our patriarch, our land, but they were never conquered or liberated or what have you. Now, as he says here in the notes, some say that these refer to the nations of Edom, Moab, and Ammon. Regarding them, the Torah says, If God will broaden your borders. By the way, I want to just share a teaching of Kabbalah and Hasidus, because in Kabbalah and Hasidus we talk about the seven attributes, the seven emotive attributes of chesed, gura, tiferes, netzachot, yisod, malchus, kindness, severity, and splendor, and so on and so forth, corresponding to the seven lands which make up Israel. Then, what about the intellectual attributes? Chachma bin adas, wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. We say that corresponds to keni, knizi, kadmoni, which we will only have when Mashiach comes. Now, it's interesting, and the Rebbe actually asked this question, being that we're talking about Mashiach's times, why will we need three more cities of refuge? One would imagine that when Mashiach comes, 
There'll be no murderers, and because everybody's going to be refined, there won't even be manslaughter. Everything will be a peaceful world. And the Rebbe actually discusses this, and it's published in the Kutisichas, it's a famous talk of the Rebbe. So the Rebbe explains, based on the teachings of Kabbalah, the Arizal, he explains that there's a Gemara brought down, a teaching in Talmud in Yuma, page 80a, which says that Rebbe Shmuel, a great sage, who lived after the destruction of the Holy Temple, as soon as he would inadvertently commit a transmission, he would take out his notepad, not the computer notepad, but a real notepad, and he would say, he would write down, when the Holy Temple will be rebuilt, I owe a sin offering. And that would be in his, in his, in his book, in his little black book. Which means that even though Rabbi Shmuel lived in the times of, leave, leave it here. even though Rabbi Shmuel lived in the times of post-Mesamikdash, he undertook an obligation. So when Mashiach comes, all those who needed the city of refuge will need one. So there's going to be a big traffic jam. <laughs> That's why you need three more cities. This is a beautiful explanation of the Rebbe. Hey, the Chayobin Bezin Lechavan Adrochim Lohi The courts have to make sure that there are clear directional signs. Or actually, they need to construct roads, the Taknam, to make sure that the roads are in good shape, and to broaden them, to keep them free of any stumbling blocks, any snares, as we say today, fix the potholes. We need to get the potholes repaired. And make sure that there isn't in the road, not sudden hills, not sudden valleys, not a sudden river, because if a guy is running to the city of refuge, and he has to run faster than the relative, and he hits a detour, end of the road, flooded, <laughs> construction ahead, this is the problem. He can't afford a traffic jam. That's why Los Angeles would never be a city of refuge, too much traffic. What happens when they see all of a sudden there's a river? Well, they build a bridge, chick-chock, quickly. In order that they not prevent the person who's escaping to get stuck in traffic, to get stuck by a river. As the Bosik says, Ready the road, prepare the road. How wide should this road be? Should it be a narrow, long and winding road? Or should it be a highway, a freeway? He says, The width of these roads heading to the city of refuge must be a minimum of 32 cubits. A cubit is about a foot and a half, which means about, what is it, 48 feet? That's pretty wide. I guess they needed a carpool lane too, maybe. Or Miklot, Miklot. There were always signs. It said, City of Refuge, this way. You know, you shouldn't get mixed up. Which way do I go? Miklot, Miklot. There was clear signage. Oh, your it was written. Al-Parosh at every crossroad. Today, Sheyachiru, that any manslayer should clearly know and recognize the Yif they should go the right direction. I, I just read a cute, a cute uh, anecdote. This kid comes back and he says, you know, my father worked for the city. He worked in the highway department. And for many years, I suspected that he was stealing from the city. But today, when I came home, I saw all the signs. That's a joke. Signs, signs. Never mind. Okay. On the 15th of other, Shushan Purim, annually, Bez in the courts, send out people to fix the roads. This is what we call shovel ready construction. Wherever they find that there were potholes or problems with the roads, they would correct them. What if the courts got lazy? They got busy. You know, we have a busy. The Torah considers the court to be murderers. Maybe a guy was running to the city of refuge. Maybe what he did was not his fault. The family member who's just having an attack of rage. He needs anger management. He catches him and kills him because there was a traffic jam, because there was construction. So the court is considered murderous because there should have been a clear open road, a high priority. I don't know, uh, 48 feet. That's like a six-lane high. I don't know, I'm just kidding. So also, they would measure from city to city at the beginning of the designation until they were split in equal distances. Why? Because we want, no matter where the person is, the city of refuge should not be too far away. And as I showed the map earlier, you have one in the north, one in the center, one in the south. Prepare the roads. Which means you need planning, geographical planning. Ches or Miklot, city of refuge. They should not be huge cities. You don't take a city like Tel Aviv or Los Angeles and make it a city of refuge. These are massive cities. No good. They should make big cities even. They shouldn't be tiny little villages. They should be average cities. A city, not a village, but not a big city. Because it has to be manageable. There has to be security and so on. They should also be near trading places. They should also be near water supply because it has to be an independent, self-functioning city. What if there is no water? We bring water. And it should be set up, not in a barren desert, 
But it should be a place of population. It has to be a populated city. Not massive, but populated. And what if the population dwindles? The, the government, the courts, have to see that the population should grow. I guess they give people tax advantages. They'll move there. And what if the people who live there become less... I'm sorry. What if... Yeah, the people who live there are decreased. You bring in there... You bring in some Kohanim, some Levim, some Yisraelim, and some people feel that the cities of refuge were only inhabited by Levites. That's from this Rabbah, we see that that's not true. That there is a mixture. We should not have traps set in that city. Nor do we want rope traps set there for hunting. Because if there's going to be hunting and other kinds of massive business enterprise, then the relative will find an excuse to come there for business. And he'll kill him. Therefore, we don't want to have any type of attraction. Any type of business that will attract lots of people. Test Kalori Halvi and Kelt. Here the Rambam tells us something very important. And we touched upon this earlier. How many cities of refuge were there? Six. How many Levite cities, in addition to the six, were there? Forty-two. In how many cities, in total, did the Levim live? Forty-eight. Forty-two plus six. What's the difference? Ah, I'm glad you asked. Kol Ore Halvi and Kelt. Every one of the Levite cities is a haven for a manslaughter. Why? Because the Levites are there. And any one of them, if need be, could be used for that. Shenem, as it says, Ba'aleim on top of the six. Kitnu, you should appoint and designate our boy Mushtaim here, forty-two cities. Call her all of the cities, which we give to the Levites, are boy Mushtaim here, in total 48. They all have the capacity to act as city of refuge. In that case, you may ask a question, why do we say there are six cities? Let's say there's 48 cities. This is like we say around Pesach time. What would be the difference? Yes, between the city of refuge. Which is designated for refuge. And between Shah and the rest, Ariel, the Levite cities. Because the city of refuge serve as a haven whether the manslayer intends for it or not. The rest of the cities, the other 42 cities, they can serve as a haven. I'm sorry. Being that the manslayer enters, he becomes a refugee and he has protection, but the rest of the cities, only serve as havens if there is clear knowledge. And I would imagine you have to let the management know and so on because they're not set up to be a regular city of refuge. But I say, now the Rambam touches upon something else. What about a manslayer who lives in a city of refuge? Does he have to pay rent? Or does he get free rent? The answer is it depends which city of refuge. One of the six, ain't a nice and basic, does not pay rent. It's a government property, government housing. Bahadur, Bishar, or somebody lives in the other 42 cities, Mason Sakhal Babai's got to pay rent to the landlord. This is not the city of refuge, it's the Levite city. If need be, can act as a city of refuge. Yudalev, Kol Ir Hakilates, any city of refuge, which is one, Tchuma Kailit Kamayo, then the surrounding area, which we talk about. The 2,000 cubits around the city also provide protection. So they're within the boundary, they get protection. Elon a tree in the boundary, or a miklot of these cities. The and its branches, are outside the chutzlitchum, outside the boundary. Even when the manslayer comes under that branch, even though it's extending outside the 2,000 cubits, he's already protected. If he's outside the boundary, and the branch is, the tree is outside the boundary, and the branch is within the boundary. When he comes to the main part of the tree, he gets protection. Somebody who kills him there, meaning the relative who kills him, is liable for a trial for death penalty. Even though the 2,000 surrounding cubits also offer protection, as we just said, a manslayer cannot live there, he has to live in the city itself. He should dwell within it, and not within its boundary. End of chapter 8. Rambam, Mishnah Torah, the laws of murder, and also the guarding of one's health. Because from murder, he segues to manslaughter, then he segues to this law we're going to learn today, and then he goes into health laws. Very interesting. But today we have a special portion. And I would like to begin by introducing the verbiage, the words in the Chumash, in the Bible, in the Torah. It's Deuteronomy, the end of Parsha Shoftim, chapter 21. I'm going to read only in English to do it quickly. If a murder victim is found lying in the field, in the land which God, your God, is giving you as a possession, and it's not known who killed him. This is what we call a John Doe, an unknown corpse. They put a toe tag on it, they put down John Doe. Your senior judges should go out from the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court, and they should measure the distance from where the corpse is lying 
to the cities around the corpse in each direction. What will happen is that from the city closest to the corpse, the elders of that city should take a female calf, which has never been used for work, one that has never drawn a yoke. The elders of that city should bring the calf down to a rock-hard valley, which was never tilled or sown, and there in the valley, they should break the back of the calf's neck. The priests, the Kohanim, descendant of Levi, should then draw water. Why the priests? For God, your God, has chosen them to serve him, to issue blessings in the name of God, and to pass judgment on every controversy. I'm sorry. The priests, the son of Levi, should draw near. I said draw water. They should come close, because they were chosen by God, to pass judgment on every controversy and every lesion. We're talking about leprosy. All the elders of that city, which is closest to the corpse, should wash their hands over the calf that was decapitated in the valley, and they should announce and proclaim, Our hands did not do anything that might have indirectly even caused this bloodshed, nor did our eyes see this crime. The Kohanim shall then say, Atone for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed, O God. Do not place the liability of innocent blood among your people Israel. The blood will thus be atoned for them. And there's a closing note here. If the murderer is later found, you should execute him and eliminate the shedding of innocent blood from amongst you, and you will thus do what is proper in the eyes of God. That's the broader translation of the last verse. So, that's the section in a broader, with a broader interpretation, which actually is a very important section. And I will share with you some conversation that I had with my father of blessed memory as a child, where my father would tell me that when we live in a community and no one, thank God, is ever killed in the world we know, and all of a sudden they find a murder victim, the whole city, the whole state, the whole country shuts down, and everybody is looking for the murderer. But then if it happens the next day, and then if it happens the day after, and then they find 10 people, and then they find 100 people, and then they find 1,000 people, and then there's a war, and all of a sudden tens of thousands are dying. So we say, another million people perish in the Holocaust, if they even reported it, and in sports. And I asked my father, how did they talk about sports during the Second World War when there were so many deaths? He says, hey, you know, you get used to everything. People are people. This portion was created by God, so we never get used to even one death, even if he's a John Doe, even if we have no idea who he is. Let's learn the laws in the Hey, the chapter 9. A person who was slain, as we'll learn later, by sword, who was found fallen on the ground. A corpse. We have no idea who killed him. I guess the video cameras didn't pick up anything. We leave him right there. We don't move him. And five elders from the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court in Jerusalem, are called. They have to leave to the Supreme Court. They go on a field mission. As it says, Your elders and your judges should leave the comforts of their court. And they have to actually measure the point of incident to all the cities around this corpse. Because this Torah law mandates that we find the closest city. So you have to get surveyors, I guess, who know how to measure. Or you can use uh, Google Land. I feel the need today you could do it all on a computer with Google. But this was before Al Gore invented the internet. I feel the need to be sad here, even if you find it at the side of one particular city. It's obvious even to someone who only got a C in geography that this is the closest city. Mitzvah limde. It's still a mitzvah to measure. Measuring is a mitzvah. And we've ascertained the closest city to this corpse. This is interesting. Wherever the corpse is, he acquires the real estate in which he's laying, and he's buried right there. That becomes his grave. And then, and only then, can the elders of Jerusalem return to Jerusalem. Why? Because they did their job. They surveyed, they measured, they identified the closest city, and they saw to the burial of the corpse. Now, this is handed over to the leadership of that city. Which city? The closest city. And the court of that city, and bring, following the dictates of Torah, what do they bring? Eglas Bokor. They bring this calf. The calf should belong to the inhabitants of that city. I guess it comes from uh, tax money. And then they bring this calf to a river that flows forcefully. The words in the Torah are nachal eson, meaning a powerfully flowing river. So it has to be brought. They have to find as close to the place as possible, I guess, a flowing river, and that's where this ritual is done. 
Gimel, what did they do? What's the ritual? The Eif and Eis are shown there at the flowing river. They decapitate it, the capes with the cleaver, from behind. Meaning the person with the cleaver stands behind the camp and decapitates it. And this is an act that shows senseless death. And the court of that city, in Kol came now with all its elders, even if the elders are a hundred, all the elders have to be slept down to this powerfully running river. They all have to wash their hands at that place where the camp was decapitated. This is again a mitzvah in the Torah. It's not the most rational, logical mitzvah, but it's, it packs a powerful punch. And what do they do when they wash their hands? And there they declare, in the valley, in what language? Spanish, no. In Hebrew. In the holy tongue. What do they say? The words are in the Torah. Our hands did not spill this blood. And our eyes didn't see. Do we actually suspect the court of that city or its leaders that they are murderers? Of course not. Claymar, what they mean to say is, this guy didn't show up in our city. And we told him, no lickers, no schmickers, go. Somebody comes in, he says he's hungry. You feed him. And we let him go without food. God forbid. You're hungry, feed. They eat. Like they tell the joke that this fellow knocks on the door of this rich man's palatial home and he says, please, please, I didn't eat for three days. The guy says, force yourself. What do you mean you didn't eat for three days? You have to build up an appetite. People in palatial homes cannot imagine they're hungry people. The lady in Nuhu, say the leadership, we didn't see this guy. We didn't let him go without escort because there was a mitzvah. We learned this from Abraham. Eshel. It says, Eshel. Abraham, Abraham, being planted in Eshel, translated as a tamarisk tree or tamarisk tree or whatever it is. Say our sages, Eshel stands for an acrostic. That Abraham, Abraham, used to give people food. See a drink, Levia, he would escort them. Because if you're in a bad neighborhood, you've got to walk the guy out until he gets on the highway, until he gets on the 101. That's a safe place. Just kidding. And the Kohanim say again in the holy tongue, Please, God Almighty, forgive your people Israel. If they follow this ritual, God will forgive this needlessly spilled blood. Because somebody murdered this guy. As it says, the blood will be atoned for. And here again, what's the lesson? One life is precious to stop the whole Supreme Court, to stop the elders of a whole city. A life was needlessly taken. Whose life? We have no idea. He didn't have any ID. He had no social security number. Could there be a person without a social security number? Probably not, but this guy didn't have one. Now, when we measure from the corpse, when we measure from the point of the slain corpse, we are precise in our measurement. We have to measure precise. We can't estimate. Furthermore, we say we measure to see which city is closest. What's the definition of a city? What's a city? You know, you're driving through highways. You see, this is the city of population seven. <laughs> is that a city? So he says the cities we're talking about are only cities that are large enough to have a supreme court which deals with capital crimes. What is that? As we learned in great detail on our Monday night class, right here, which we studied the Tractate of Sanhedrin for years, a city that has a court of 23 judges. That's for capital crimes. So that's the city we're talking about. They made it in Yerushalayim. What if it's close to Jerusalem, which has a court not only of 23, but of 71? Jerusalem doesn't count. Jerusalem is the capital. It doesn't count. Jerusalem is a holy city. Because you don't bring this decapitated camp in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was not one of those territories divided into states. Jerusalem was not given to any tribe. Remember, it says, in the land that God your God gave you to inherit. <coughs> For example, and this is what teachers tell their, their students. This is what my teacher told me when I was a kid. I use contemporary terms. This law of Jerusalem is similar, Labdul, to the United States, Washington, D.C. What's Washington, D.C.? It's the capital. Well, do people live there? Of course people live there. Well, every state, we have now 50 states. Every state has two senators. How many senators are there all together? 100. How do I know? Because two times 50 is 100, because I was very good in math. Well, what about Washington, D.C.? Does it have a senator? No, because it's the capital. Washington, D.C. is the capital, it's not a state. Lahabdul, Abdul, Jerusalem was the capital. It was not given to any tribe. Hey, Nims are caught up in Yerushalayim. What if, this, what if this John Doe is close to Jerusalem? to a city that has no court. The closest city to it has a population of 12. You skip that city and you go to the larger cities. We want a real city with a real capital crimes court. What if you find it near, we're talking about in Israel, but it's near a border city. You find it near a boundary, a border of another country. And that country has 
non-Jews, idol worshippers, and Muslims. And it's very logical that a terrorist did it. Who knows? And made it in Kaliker. Then we don't even measure because if it's near a country, especially a hostile country, you can assume that that's where the murderer came from. So what do you have to go knock yourself out and do this whole ritual because it didn't come from a Jewish community? Even when you find a close city and it meets all the requirements, and that's what's beautiful about the Rambam. You could be learning Chumash and Rashi for years, and all of a sudden you learn all the details that you never knew when you learn the Rambam and the Halacha. Even the city that's closest to this event should not bring this camp unless its population is equal to that of the city that's further away. But if the city a little further, Miruben had a greater population than the closer one. Well, let me tell you, what are we trying to figure out? Which city the murderer came from? Well, then population counts. You want numbers. So if there's 500 people in the closest city and 50,000 in the further city, even though they both happen to have words of 23, well, it's not the closest city that probably did it because it doesn't have enough population for probability. And the city with the majority around there. Even though you follow majority by Torah law, then by Torah you also follow the closest city. So what do you do? If the closest city is not the most populous one, if the populous one is not the closest one, in this case, says the Rambam Harev, or if the population is more important. Yes. What if they find the John Doe exact the moment between two cities? And the populations of the two cities are exactly the same. They can bring a camp and do the ritual in partnership. And they should conditionally proclaim, and say, if this is the closer one, then it's this one. They should give the gift of their portion. If this one is the closer one, then it's theirs. And the other city that they have should give it as a gift. It's impossible to see exactly which city is further, but one of them is slightly further, even if it's a matter of a few feet or closer. From what spot on the corpse do they measure? The answer is, from the nose of the corpse. And he brings down that this is the opinion of Rabbi Akiva in the Gemara Sota, based upon the teaching that the spirit of Hashem enters and leaves through the nostrils. Where if they find the body of the John Doe in one place? And his head is in another place. They take the head to the body, and they bury him in the right there. They take, I'm sorry, I think I said it wrong. They take the body, to the head, and they bury him right there. Because Rabbi Akiva maintains that when the head is severed from the body, the head will generally fall in the place where the person was killed, while the body may, as a result of convulsions, shift its position somewhat. The same applies for any corpse who is found and has no relatives. Any John This applies in general. When a corpse is found, you bring the body to the head and is buried in the spot. And we learned this law earlier in the Rambam relating to other issues where you would have a corpse buried somewhere in the middle of nowhere. What if you find many corpses, one next to another? You have to measure from the nose of each corpse. If there was one city closest to all of them, you could bring, they could bring one cap for all of the corpses. What if one was upon the other? One corpse was on top of the other. You measure from the top one as they are laying there. The verse says, if a corpse will be found, the word cholo means slain with a sword. Not a person who was strangled, nor a person who was in his death rose. This is not the meaning of the word cholo, which means slain. The next word in the verse says, on the earth, not in a mound, not buried in a mound, on the open earth. Fall in, not hanging on gallows or on a tree. In the field, not floating on water. We have no idea who killed him. If we do, this whole ritual does not kick in. You go after the murderer. Even if one witness, which by Jewish law is not a qualified testimony, sees, and one witness comes and testifies, says, listen, I saw the whole event, it was terrible, and so on. That is fine to have this ritual not practiced because at least we know what happened, even though we can't use that testimony. I feel evident, even when the witness was evident, one of the people who, as we will learn in the laws of witnesses, are not qualified to testify by Jewish law, even a non qualified witness is enough to give us information which says, hey, we don't need this to come down here. This whole ritual is unnecessary. Therefore, you know something the Rabbah brings down here? During the latter part of the second holy temple, he brings down here, when there was tremendous violence in Roman society to the Jews, and that was the reality. 
This whole practice was suspended. Otherwise, they'd be doing it every two days. So when it's too much, this practice is there to tell us every life is valuable. But when there's murders going on all the time, then you're living in a bad time or in a bad place. And of course, the end of the Second Temple period in Israel was a very difficult place in a very bad time. One witness says, another witness comes and contradicts him, and he says to him, you're a liar, 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 your pants are on fire. So you couldn't see. They did it anyway, because only one witness is contradicting. When does this apply to Shabosh and Tachas when they came together simultaneously? But if one said, I saw the murderer, for this purpose, one witness is as good as two, because he's giving us information. And afterwards, one witness showed up, and contradicted him. You didn't see? We don't take the other one seriously, because it's not really testimony. It's just revealing information, saying you do do this ritual or you don't. And we should not do the capitation either. What if after one witness testified that he saw the murderer? Two then, two witnesses came. Two witnesses in Jewish law. And they contradicted him. They told him, later, Isa, you didn't see. Now they are considered two conflicting sets of witnesses, which means the first one, although it was only one, is accepted. And it is done because you have two conflicting sets of witnesses. Even though the set who said no were two. Isha matters. By Jewish law, in many instances, a woman is not qualified to testify for the same reason that she's not qualified to be a judge. That's a complex issue which we will go into in greater depth when we come pretty soon to the laws of courts and judges. What if she says, I saw the murderer? And another woman said, she contradicts her. And she says later, so you have two equal testimonies. How you they would decapitate. Whether both women came together, one came after the other, because one is accepted and the other one contradicts it. What if two say, you know, we saw, one says, to women. Two women say, we saw the murderer, and one says, you didn't. Then you do not decapitate, because you take the testimony of the one witness to contradict. What if one witness says, I saw, and two say, no, they still do it, because again, we're talking about revealing information more than testimony here. When all three were kosher, all three were unfit. Ah, which means one category is absolute kosher witnesses that would be acceptable for any type of testimony, and the other is a more broader information source. They were all the same. One witness said, saw the murder. And two women or two others who are unfit for all testimony, only for certain issues. They say, later, we didn't see, and you do not decapitate. What if there were two women, or two people who are, for other reasons, not 100% qualified to testify? They say, we saw, I hated the murder. And one witness, contradicts them, and says, later, you did not see. They would do the decapitation, even if there were 100 women who came, or 100 people who were unfit legally to testify in all cases. And one witness contradicts them. It's like each is one and one. Three unfit witnesses for all cases. We saw the murderer. The Arab Nashim, four women, the Arab Nashim, four. Witnesses who, for other reasons, may not be qualified. I mean, they say, ladies, some you did not see Erfin four is better than three. So you do this process. Zakla, this is the rule. Bapsulim, in people who give testimony, and they're credible, but they don't meet the requirements of 100% kosher witnesses. Halech, acha, reva, minyan, you always follow the number of the majority. So four are better than three. End of chapter nine. Rambam Mishnah Torah. Hilchais, the laws of Retzeach, of murder, manslaughter, and Ushmidas, Nefesh, guarding one's health. Pedic Asiri, chapter 10. We pick up in chapter 10 where we left off in chapter nine, the scenario of the John Doe, of the corpse found murdered in the middle of nowhere. And the members of the high court of the Sanhedrin coming, they measure which city it is closest to, and the leaders of that city come, <coughs> and they find a valley which has never been planted or sown, and they, with a stream, and they do a ritual, which we learned about, and now that ritual is called Egla Arufa, the cap, where the back of the head is, or decapitated, and now he qualifies, Pedic Asidi, chapter 10, Ein Din Egla Arufa, this whole ritual of Egla Arufa, which we learned about up to now, is not Noheg observed, El Eretz Yisrael, only in Israel, it's not a diaspora commandment, not only in Israel proper, but it's also, Observed in Transjordan, because, as I've said many times today, there's a debate whether the West Bank is part of Israel proper or not. And biblically, of course it is. Not only is the West Bank, but also the East Bank, which is today Jordan, was part of greater Israel. So in Transjordan, this law was also observed, but not outside of Israel. Now, definition, we talk about this young calf. What age does it have to be? Beis Egla Rufa, the calf that was decapitated by the, by the laws of this ritual. It has to be two years old or less. 
in calf years. It has to be two years old. If it was born on January 1st, then it has to be under January 1st, two years later. Even if it was one day into its third year, it is unfit. Actually, I was just being cute because I'm sure that the years go in Hebrew dates, not in secular dates, which sometimes are shorter and sometimes are longer years. The Ein Hamum in Paisley. What if this calf had a blemish? This does not make it unacceptable because it's not a sacrifice. The Alpha became nevertheless a trepa. If it was a trepa, what's a trepa? An animal with regard to which the vet said it can't live 12 months, then it's a dying animal. Suloid cannot be used for this purpose. Why? Kaporo nemar bo It's Although it's not a sacrifice, the term atonement has been used similar to holy objects. Gimo kolo avegis paisles eso aigua. We said that this cap should never have been worked with. What kind of work are we talking about? Any kind. Like the laws prohibiting work with the red heifer, which we learned in great detail earlier. Shanemar, the verse says specifically, Asher loy ubagbo, which was not worked with, just like all the details with the red heifer. I'm sorry, why does it talk about yoke? After it says working, obviously if you put a yoke on an animal, you work with it. Because he now includes placing the yoke on this animal with any other type of work. Just placing the yoke on the animal disqualifies it. Whether you actually work with the animal or not, placing the yoke is also a form of work. Even a hand breath. With this yoke, Nifzalot has become unfit. Even though, wait a minute, he didn't plow with it, he didn't do any work with it, but you put the yoke on and fold it even a tiny bit, even a hand breath. All other types of work have to be actually done. The labor has to be performed. When you cause the animal to do anything, which one could argue is work, but it's not for your benefit, it's for the animal's benefit. For example, one of the items of work an animal can do is it can carry your coat for you. So that's work. The animal's carrying your coat. This person spread out his garment on the animal, not because he was too tired to carry his own coat. The plane's moving because the flies were swarming over this animal. So he's protecting the calf. Ah, that's for the good of the calf. Ain't a place like this does not disqualify. Because you were helping the calf. However, if it's not bringing benefit to the calf, for example, why'd you put your coat on the animal? Let's be honest. So the animal should carry it for you because it was hot. Or whatever, you were tired. Sula, this disqualifies. The Hanko Koyotsubas are in a similar scenario. We went into much greater detail in the laws of the red heifer. Hey, this ritual of decapitating this calf may only be performed in daylight hours. Why? Similar to a sacrifice which may only be brought during daylight hours. Because the expression atonement is used, like for holy sacrifices. Is there a particular time in the day when it has to be done? No. Anytime there's daylight. You don't do this, to, you don't decapitate two calves. For example, you found two slain corpses. So you don't do two at a time. Why? And this is a rule. There's a beautiful rule that it's not respectful to a mitzvah to do it in bundles. You don't do wholesale. Every mitzvah needs to be given its focus and attention. Therefore, by decapitating two calves at the same time, because there were two slain people, not good. Each one deserves its moment. Once this calf has been decapitated, no benefit may be had from it, which means you can't sell it for its meat, even non-kosher. It must be buried in the place where it was decapitated. And once it is taken down to this river, benefiting from it is forbidden, even though it has not yet been decapitated. If a dyer was slaughtered, after it was taken down, it is forbidden to benefit from it, and it should be buried. What if the witnesses are found to be lying? The witnesses come and say that you have to do this procedure, and then they're found to be lying. Then you can benefit from it. Where is the situation? What do the witnesses say? What's the scenario? Again, for example, and we learned these scenarios in great detail earlier. What if one witness said, I saw the murderer. Okay, in that case, it's not an unknown murderer. And two witnesses came, and contradicted him and said, what are you talking about? How could you say you saw the murderer when we were in Las Vegas together? And they said, you didn't see. In that case, they have to do this ritual because they don't know the murderer. So they set aside this calf, but you do, and they caused it to descend on Nachal to this brook. We are for to decapitate it, according to their testimony, who disqualified the one who says he saw the murderer, and then the two who said that the guy was disqualified are found perjurious. So the guy now, the one witness, is requalified, and his testimony is correct. He saw the murderer. So if one witness even sees the murderer, you don't need to do this ritual. So now the calf is not going to be decapitated. It is now permitted to benefit from this calf. And the question is, how could this be? The answer is, because when they set it aside, they have in mind that maybe it will change at the last minute. 
What if the murderer was found before the decapitation took place? So you had designated this animal, and then you found the murderer, takes it then let it go and let it pasture with the rest of the herd. What if the murderer was found after the calf was decapitated? Obviously, needlessly, let it be buried in its place. From the very beginning, we designated it in case we don't know. The whole law, its atonement was doubtful, and then the atonement process is no longer here. Even though the murderer was found after the calf was decapitated, still, should he be prosecuted if possible? If possible, he should be prosecuted, and with the death penalty in mind, if it fits. There has to be two witnesses who saw it and warned him. As it says, even after the decapitation, the Ato and you, Tabai and Hadomanoki, shall cleanse the innocent blood. How do you cleanse innocent blood? By prosecuting with death penalty in mind. By the way, if anybody is studying this chapter with us and they have no idea what I'm talking about, decapitation, you have to study the previous chapters, which will give you a background as to the whole ritual. Test 9, the river, the brook, at which this calf was decapitated, also it is forbidden to plant and to work there forever. You can't create this, transform it into a fertile area. It shall not be worked. It shall not be planted. Anybody who does work the ground, he planted a wheat or what have you, or he planted saplings, fruit trees, this is the violation of a negative commandment, and there is lashes that could apply, if there are witnesses and so on. However, it is permissible, one can, uh, comb flax or drill stones. Why? Because this is a separate work, not connected to the soil. It's like somebody went and wove a garment. It's why you're sowed. There's no connection to the soil. It may not be worked. It may not be planted. Just as planting is in the soil. Any labor forbidden there is only in the body of the soil. You, the closing paragraph of this chapter. The closing paragraph of this chapter. Of chapter 10. The people of the closest city. What if they delayed? They procrastinated. The Torah law mandates. The Sanhedrin was there. They did their research. They did their measure. They decided that the people of this in the city have to bring an egg larufa. And they just didn't. Why? Because. You can coerce them. The government forces them. The Sanhedrin forces them. And they have to do it. Well, is there an expiration date? Even after many years. Those who are obligated to perform this ritual of the decapitated camp. There are some mitzvahs where we say once Yom Kippur passes, it's too late. Here, even if Yom Kippur passes, they have to bring this ritual after Yom Kippur, end of chapter 10.